This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I actually had a lot more intense title for this one. And I, I lessened it because I wanted you guys not to tune out and go into uh, bubble wrap mode uh, before we had a chance to get going. But this is a very hope-filled message, and so you'll notice that I stuck that in the title. You don't know. I'm not going to tell you what it originally was going to be called. That doesn't help. Uh, the, uh, the subtitle is Sobering but Hope-Filled. Notice how I, st- I stuck in hope-filled. Study of the coming judgment. There is something about a message like this that is needed for every single one of us. It recalibrates our spiritual life. We have a tendency to get sloppy. We have a tendency to lose that that sense of seriousness of what is at stake in this world in which we live. And we have a tendency unwittingly to lessen the ideas of judgment. When we lose the amplification of judgment to its proper levels, we oftentimes, at the same movement of soul, in diminishing judgment, we diminish salvation because they're two sides of the same issue, which is the nature of God. And so you can't help but diminish the power of the cross and the work of his shed blood when you diminish and turn down the volume on judgment. So it's a strange exercise for us as the church to turn up the proper volume on judgment and in fear. I mean, what, why would we want to focus on that, do we? But what it does is it automatically turns up the value, the beauty, the true volume for us to hear the beauty of his salvation. So I, I need to turn up the volume on judgment today. Judgment. A remarkable punishment. See, we could talk about judgment in a very simple way. You know, you stole and you went before a judge and he said, yeah, you're guilty, you owe $100. And that's judgment. But the kind of judgment we're talking about in Scripture is a remarkable punishment. In fact, for many of us, when we don't fully understand the gravity of sin or what we could call the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the judgment as portrayed in Scriptures is harsh and over and above what we think in our minds it's due. When in actuality, that's our very problem. What is going to come in the upcoming judgment, the forthcoming judgment, is due. It is just. It is right. And it is remarkable. It's an extraordinary calamity inflicted by God on sinners. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Now, what's amazing about that statement is, for those of you that know Romans 8.1, it says, therefore, it's a conclusive statement on a whole argument that Paul has been making through Romans, therefore, if this is true, 
What Paul is saying is true. The arguments of what it means to be in Christ and what it truly means to be set free from the power of sin unto the power of God's life. If this is true, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who no longer walk after the first man, the flesh life, but now walk after a new life in the spirit. And if that change has been made from old unto new, there is no condemnation or there is no pending judgment upon you. And so, for the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Now, the very one we would understand as Christians that is our Savior is the one who is entrusted with the judgment. You know, ironically, at first blush, that's a little confusing. It's also one of the great solaces to the church to recognize that the very one who would judge me in the end is the very one who has reached out and rescued me and brought brought me into the safe territory. Your greatest threat is one known as Jesus Christ, and he's your very savior. It's understanding, like in the Ludi home, you don't mess with daddy, okay? That's just a rule of thumb. It's like, hey, when daddy says to do something, you obey, okay? It's just not a good thing to violate daddy, okay? Daddy is, you know, he's tough when he needs to be tough. And so there's a fear of daddy in a healthy way. I don't want you to think that I'm just roaming around the house going, hey! It's just that there is a order to our house and you don't mess with daddy. Daddy means business. Daddy remembers what he asked kids to do. And if daddy sees that the kids are disobeying, then daddy will bring, I don't want to say a remarkable punishment. That just seems a little extreme. But he will bring a punishment, okay? So daddy's consistent. And so what's interesting is daddy's also a papa bear that will protect his home. And if someone tries to come and threaten my kids, my kids are going to know where to hide. They hide right behind daddy. Daddy will not put up with that. The very, if you could say, the one who brings judgment in the Ludi home is also the great savior of the Ludi home. In a small, small picture, mind you, there is this understanding in the kingdom of heaven that we have a daddy. And we're finding shelter under his wing. And though he will correct us, and though he will purge sin out of our lives, he's also the great protector from that which comes to harm us. Salvation and judgment. I'm going to call them fraternal twins. You know, they have the same birth date, and yet they don't look the same. They come from the same womb, the same nature of God, and yet they don't look the same. They're very different. The Ark of Noah... There's one ark, and yet there's two different things that this ark is bringing. For those that heed God and believe God, what is it? It's salvation. For those that reject God's word, what is it? It's a symbol of pending judgment. And when that rain or that judgment falls, that ark proves to be the saving device for those of faith, and it is a symbol floating on the water of those that are actually sinking in the judgment, the Passover night. There is something happened on Passover night in ancient uh, Egypt when God tells his people, put blood on the doorpost. And when you put blood on the doorpost, symbolic of those of us now in the new covenant, in Christ, who have put the blood of Christ upon our lives by faith, when you put that blood on your doorpost, that, that death angel that will pass over tonight in Egypt will pass over your home. And but will strike down anyone who does not have that blood upon them. The waters of the Red Sea. You can look at those waters as something wonderful if you're an Israelite. 
They're the very saving device of God. They part and they allow the Israelites through into dry land on the other side. And yet those same waters are the judgment upon the Egyptians. And so what you're going to see is that all throughout the history of God's people, God's revelation, you're going to see this tension that that which is salvation, if you reject it, it actually is your judge. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He knows how to save. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. God's good at both. He's good at saving and he's good at judging. You see, this is his nature and it's eternal. He is the I am. He's always been this way. He always will be this way. And he is this way today in our lives. He has a desire to save and he's really good at it. But for those that reject his salvation, he's really good at bringing judgment. Trembling before his holiness. God is jealous and the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. You know, for most of us, our concept of God doesn't fit into that scripture in Nahum. Now, some of us also have the notion that we're just glad that Jesus came and so that we don't need to deal with the God of the Old Testament anymore. It's like, wow, he was just one big, serious meaning. When in actuality, Jesus perfectly reveals the God of the Old Testament. There is no distinction, no difference between Jehovah in the Old Testament and who Jesus is. He's the perfect reflection. If you really want to get to know the Father, get to know Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, the one who is revealing to you Jesus Christ, is the perfect enunciation of both. In other words, he's going to express that same nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And they reveal one. God, who does not alter, who does not change, in whom there is no shadow of turning. The same yesterday, today, and forever. I recognize at first blush, it's hard to comprehend that God is this serious, that the Lord revenges. The Lord revenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Romans, now we're in the New Testament. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're going to notice that a lot of the scriptures I'm going to read today come from the New Testament. In other words, for those of you that think the New Testament itself obliterates the wrath of God, you see, the wrath of God is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, that curse that is upon us, he bore. And so when we find refuge in him, there's no stickiness anymore. There is no need for judgment on those that find refuge in the righteous one. Let's go through history here. We have two men in all of history. I know, you could say, haven't there been billions? Two. There's Adam, and then what's known as the second man, or the last Adam, and his name is Jesus Christ. So those are the two men, because everyone comes out of Adam. I mean, even Eve came out of Adam, if you want to look at it that way. Every single person in all of world history comes out of Adam. So you're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. Those are the two options. Adam is under judgment. He has a deserving condemnation over his life. And so you can do some quick calculations of where you find yourself. 
I mean, if you're not Jesus, then that would mean you wouldn't be in Jesus, right? I mean, how in the world are you going to graft yourself into Jesus? You see, so there is one that cannot satisfy God, that God has, has a fury towards. It is under condemnation, and it's known as Adam. And there's one that satisfies God. The offering of this second one satisfies God. It's pleasing in his sight. His name is Jesus. All throughout the Bible, you're going to see a first and a second. The first cannot satisfy God. But the second one satisfies God. And so all throughout the text of Scripture, you see this mystery that is hidden. And God is always pointing, saying, if you remain in the first, you die. But if you forsake, and the term is repent, if you repent of your engagement, your life in Adam, and you believe in Jesus Christ, you will live. So in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. So again, you have this mystery of twos. The first tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second tree was called the tree of life. This first tree, God says, do not eat of it. The day in which you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so what we understand that as is the law of sin and death. If you disobey me, if you rebel against my word and you sin, the day in which you do, you will die. And so what Eve did in listening to the serpent is she rebelled against God, shared this with Adam. Adam enters into this same sin. Both of them enter into condemnation. It's called the law of sin and death. They enter into a covenant with death, binding, eternal, serious stuff. There was another tree in the garden the whole time. Isn't that amazing? It's called the tree of life. But they were barred from it lest they stay in this condition forever. God kicks them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and stay like this forever. And so cherubim with flaming swords block the way to this garden, to this tree. Jesus Christ, when he came, has made access unto the tree of life. You see, most of us don't see the cross as the tree of life, but that's exactly what it is. You see, when you eat the fruit from this first tree, you die. Unless you eat the fruit of the second tree. Who's hanging on the second tree? What's the fruit? His name is Jesus. And unless you eat the fruit of the second tree, you cannot live. A first and a second. And how you relate to that first and that second defines your eternity. The judgment seat. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, I've heard different people say, well, Christians won't. They won't stand before the judgment. Well, all throughout the Bible, it makes it very clear that we all shall stand before the judgment seat. I know it's a little uncomfortable, but I'm just giving you what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things done in his body according that, to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Isn't that an amazing statement? This is Paul writing in the New Testament. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. How often? I should have called this the terror of the Lord. <laughs> we persuade men. Why do we persuade men? Because we know the terror of the Lord. Doesn't that just seem like a strange statement to stick into modern American Christianity? We don't talk like that. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Seek ye the Lord 
All ye meek of the earth which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. In the Old Testament, you have a foreshadow of what we can call the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, it's, listen to what it says. See, you have wrought judgment upon yourself. All have sinned. All are in Adam. All are under a just condemnation. It says, seek righteousness. Do you know who righteousness is? His name is Jesus. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It shall be. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. This will make more sense as we progress. Herein, now we're in the New Testament again. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You see, as I begin to talk about judgment, if you notice that you start to get a little weak need, it's like, oh, oh, I just don't like this topic. Listen to this. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. What is he? He's righteous. Before the judgment of God, he is found pleasing. He is acquitted. He is right with God. And so if you remain in Adam, then you are wrong with God. But if there was a way to get into Jesus, then he is right with God, and anyone that is in him is also right with God. And therefore, we can have boldness in the day of judgment. The great white throne. So now we're going to understand something that is known as the great white throne, but it's the throne of judgment. And this is a scene in the Old Testament that perfectly matches with a scene that we will see in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. So whatever this is has been seen throughout the ages by different prophets who were given a vision of this great white throne of judgment. So just listen. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Now, one of the things, the description of heaven and the throne room of grace, the temple in heaven, is that there seems to be a river that flows from it. It's called the river of life. Now, what's interesting is our idea of a river is bluish, don't you think? However, I want you to understand that a river of life, to the Jew, a river, or I'm sorry, life is, is blood. Life is in the blood. And so what you see coming out of Jesus' side, do you remember when he was pierced on the cross, was a river of life. It was water and life, water and blood mixed together. And so you'll notice that even the description here is a fiery stream issued forth from before this throne. Isn't that interesting? That matches with all the rest of Scripture that talk about this river of life that cascades forth from beneath the throne of God. Isn't that amazing? Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, here we are in Revelation 20, right near the very end of the Bible, as we know it. And I saw a great white throne, says John the Apostle, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. It's a parallel with Daniel. 
and the books were open, and another book was opened. Now, I know that that, that sounds funny to, to the listening ear, but listen, I'm going to read it again. And the books were opened. So there seems to be plural books opened. And then it makes mention. It says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Ah, see, you remember the title of this message, the book of life? And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what we seem to have, and I'm going to make a distinction here, between books that are opened and another book that is opened. And anyone who is not found written, with their name written, in the second book was cast into the lake of fire. What is this first book? Well, do you remember how even the Bible is set up? The Bible is set up with a revelation of the very gospel itself, which is the twos. You have a first covenant and you have a second covenant. Which one saves? Can the first covenant save you? It's a covenant of works. And so unless you can prove perfect righteousness, you will remain under just condemnation. So how well are you doing? You see, all of us will stand before the judgment day, and according to our works, we will be judged. If you're in Adam, you're sunk. Because no matter how hard you try, you will fail in that day because your works will not justify you. If you are judged according to the books, the books of the letter of the law of God, this is what you must prove. We will all be judged. However, there is another book that if your name is written in that book, and that book, as a hint, is a man named Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh. And if your name is written in that book, then you are still judged according to your works, but it's no longer your works that are seen. It's His work. And you are judged according to works, according to even a higher law, but He satisfies it. Let me read the line again. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It was only those whose name is actually in the second book. This is a statement that agrees with all the rest of the Bible. There is only one means of salvation. And if you are not found on that judgment day in that one means, singular vehicle of salvation, then you will be judged according to your works and according to what it says in Revelation 20, it will be unsatisfactory. There is only one way to find satisfaction in the eyes of God. The open books, we'll call them the writings of God. So first, you know, we're going to call it the first or the old, the law and the prophets. Yes, there are historical writings in there, but in a general sense, what we have is the law and the prophets, and all of them are saying there is one who will come. Meanwhile, here is the covenant that we have. It is a covenant of works. It really is. It is law. And it says this is how you must live. But what is very clear in the old unto the new covenant is a simple concept. You need a savior. 
Because no matter how hard you try, this law exposes one thing in you, and that is that you are a sinner. It exposes the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the old covenant, that's what the books show. All they show is that you're under a just condemnation. That's what they show. They say at the judgment day, you will fail. You cannot stand. You need a second book. You need a savior. That's what the first books prove. So we're going to call it the book of letter. It is the letter of God. It is not the life of God. It is the letter of God that is given. And it is a statement of fact. This is who God is. It is not an exaggeration. God did not change. It's not that the law is bad. It's that the law cannot save you. The law can only incriminate you and show you that you need a savior. That's its use. Its use is to show the perfect nature of God, the perfect righteousness of God, the perfect holiness of God, and measure you against it. How you doing? You see, God's judgment is just, and that's what the first book enunciates. So we're going to call it the book of letter. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communion with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, books, tables of stone written with the finger of God. God himself is the author of that old covenant. That old covenant is, in that sense, good, godly. It is God's expression. It is God's revelation. He loves us. He gave us his word. And that word shows us that we are under condemnation. Could you imagine if the word came to you and said, uh, yeah, I have a, a rainstorm coming so extreme that it will flood the earth. But I've also made for you an ark. And this ark will be built. And anyone who enters into this ark will in fact be saved from that coming judgment. You see, the fact that God is enunciating that judgment is coming and that everyone on earth is deserving of it is what causes us to understand the news that he gives as good news. When he says, but, however... I love you, and I did not design you for destruction. I designed you to be saved, and my heart is towards you. But is your heart towards me? If it is, enter into me. Find refuge. Be hidden in me in the, in the time of coming judgment. Now, the door is open. It is not yet closed. Get inside. So now the second book. So the first book, the Old Covenant. We know it as the Old Testament. And then now the second book, the New Testament. The life of Jesus. The the new covenant in his blood. We're going to call it the book of life. So even though the Bible itself is merely pages, you know, of, you know, know, our, our books aren't like animal skins. They're actual, you know, wood turned into paper with an ink put on it, and that's what it is. It's just a compilation of those things. And the words on the page don't save us in and of themselves, but they do reveal to us the one that does, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, a book is just a book. However, this particular book, the reason men and women have died to maintain the integrity of its words throughout the generations is so that you could see who it points to. 
I think it was last week I said that the word of God in text is like a treasure map. A treasure map in and of itself is not the treasure, but it is the one thing on earth that leads you to the treasure. So if you've ever read, like, uh, what's that one book, Treasure Island, you know, in the black spot, and you have all this adventure surrounding this map. I mean, this, this map is precious, and it's the one thing that can lead them to the X that marks the spot, the cross that marks the victory, the lone spot in all of history where you can find life. It has been given, it has been revealed, but it's in this book. And so we will preserve this book, not because the book itself is the treasure, but the book itself is the letter that if we heed, if we walk, if we follow, if we believe what it says, leads us to the life. And when you believe the book, you step into the life. When you believe what God says, then your name is scrawled in the pages of Jesus Christ on his heart. You enter into who he is. So what we see is that Jesus is a living book. That's what it says in John 1. Most of us don't read it that way, but that's exactly what it is. In the beginning was the Word. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Word of God is the revelation of God throughout the entire Bible. The Bible is merely the Word of God written down. But John the Apostle is saying, this isn't the Word of God written down with ink on parchment. This is the Word of God written on human body. <laughs> this is like God himself expressing that life, all that's written down in a human life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The greater testament, the greater book. It's not written in stone, but in a human body. The greatest book, Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, Savior of the world. You can believe text, you can memorize text. However, if you do not end at the treasure, if you do not grasp who Jesus Christ is, you miss the whole point. What's the good of having a map, sticking it in your pocket and someone saying, yeah, so I heard you have a map to buried treasure. Yes, I do, amen. So what are you doing with that map to buried treasure? Well, I'm going to store it away in my pocket and just hope that one day I'll get the treasure. You see, if you've been given a map to buried treasure, you must believe that map. You must activate a very real-world engagement with the facts in that map. And if you don't act upon what you know to be true, you will not, in fact, have the substance. It's the type of thing that ends up with phrases like, I never knew you. Depart from me. In other words, you could do all these things, wave maps around and holler about maps. Are you willing to go on the journey to find it? You see, Jesus is actually very clear in how you get from Adam to him. It's not a grand journey across the ocean. You know, over high hills, through low valleys, crossing streams, climbing trees, you know, with your binoculars and looking. He says, I've revealed myself to you. Do you see it? Yes. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to repent of the life that you've lived. I want you to acknowledge that it was wrong, that my life is the only one that is right. I want you to turn from that life 
and I want you to believe. I want you to put all your confidence in my life. That what I have done for you is sufficient to save you. See, it's not crossing the ocean, hiking up high hills. It's not actually something you do. It's something he did. That he simply says, you put your confidence in me. And you will find that I am able to save you. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us. An interesting statement by Paul. It says, here I am saying that Jesus Christ is actually a living book. That's what he is. It's interesting because Paul uses the same argument when talking about what Christianity is intended to be. It's intended to be a letter written to the world of God's heart, his passion. The truth of the scriptures is meant to be revealed in us. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle, the letter of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. The very beginning of the Old Testament, you have a statement. It's like you go through the creation account, and then the text of Scripture gets down to business. And it enunciates what you're about to read. And it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book of the dead. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. You see, it's a fascinating tale, but what's it showing? It's showing the lineage of those that are attempting under law to prove faithful. And it's showing the intervention of God throughout that story. In and through the revelation of himself of the burning bush unto Moses unto the, the saving of the people through a Passover lamb and the blood upon the doorpost, the parting of a Red Sea. It's showing them the giving of a law even though they were rebellious people and deserving of being cast away. He's long-suffering and he shows mercy. All throughout it is a testimony of the same nature you and I know that God has today. But also the same judgment But God cares about a lost and dying world. He doesn't need to, but he does. And so he chooses a people through which to reveal his heart, his passion, but also his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness. And he's saying, guys, unless you can be like this, you can have no part with me. And then we look at ourselves and go, but God, I I can't. I can't do it. He says, I know. That's why I had to show you that. So that you would call on me. You see, if you still think you can live the Christian life, you haven't found the Christian life. The Christian life is found in him, not in your own ability. You can't live the Christian life in Adam. You have to forsake. It says, put off the old man and his deeds. You must repent of this first life. You must be born again in Christ Jesus by faith. So now you've seen what it says in the Old Testament. The books are opened. And we are judged. All that are in Adam will be judged according to their deeds in that body. However, those that are in Christ are judged according to the deeds done in a different body. The body of Christ. We are judged according to his deeds. It does not diminish the fact that our life on this earth and the deeds with which we perform don't matter. That's a separate sermon. But in the most basic sense, our judgment is found in Christ. And our righteousness is his righteousness, not our own, that we are judged by. 
If it is our own righteousness, hasta la vista. It's over. So look at how Matthew 1.1 starts. The very beginning of what we understand as the New Testament. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. We have the books opened and another book opened. And though anyone whose name is written in the other book is saved. But if your name is not written in the other book, it's over. Luke 4, and he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto, the, unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, isn't it just fascinating, opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. This is in Isaiah 61. And he closed the book. Oh, he read it. Uh, somehow, I've done this twice in here where I have this one passage and I take out what he read. It's the revelation of the Messiah, of what the Messiah will do when he comes. That, that obviously isn't the point that I'm trying to make. So he closes the book of Isaiah after showing what is obvious to every Jew, the messianic prophecy. The one who will come who will save his people. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I am that book fulfilled. He is the word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ himself makes it very clear. I am the fulfillment of all of that. There was a first man. And now come the generations of the Messiah. You see, he has come to have his own generations. To have those that are grafted into him to have sons and daughters of faith that actually can share just as we shared in the lineage of Adam's defeat. He desires to have children that will share in the lineage of his victory. And just as by faith we believed the word of the devil, rebelled against God, and died... We sinned, we died. Now we turn and repent and we believe the word of God and are saved. And life always triumphs over death. It's a higher law that we are submitting to. It's the law of believe and live. So in the scriptures, this book is actually referred to quite a few times. And it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's also known as the Word of God, the living book, the living epistle. So just look at this. The book of the living. I almost called this message the book of the living. I thought that was really good. It's like, what is this book? It's the book of life. Yeah, but it's the book of the living. And anyone who is written inside of it is the living. Anyone whose name is there, they have life, and it's supernatural life. It's called the book in Daniel. The book of life. The book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. How would you like that for a title? The book of life and the foundation of the world. The Lamb's book of life. The book of life. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. The disciples have gone and cast out evil spirits and are totally marveling at this power and authority that is in Jesus Christ that he's given them. But rather rejoice. Why? Not just that you can cast out demons. Rejoice. Why? Because your names are written in heaven. What a strange statement. Isn't it supposed to be written in a book? It's fascinating, but even the term heaven is a euphemism, which means a replacement word for something that is unspeakable. It is too glorious. And so heaven became an, 
a euphemism that was used throughout the Jewish culture, even for Jehovah himself, or the place of Jehovah, the throne room of grace, the place where Jehovah dwells, is simply known as heaven. Your names are written in the very place that Jehovah dwells. So then look at this and tie these two together. And Jesus has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where does Jesus sit? He sits at the right hand of the Father in that place that Jehovah dwells. And anyone who has believed in him by faith has entered into Christ and he is there. Therefore, we are written. Our names are written in a heavenly place. Introducing Jehu, the bringer of righteous judgment. One of the things that uh, the, the newly arriving students will begin to understand this a lot deeper. Those that have been around for a while here at Ellerslie understand that we'll always go back into the Old Testament and we'll show how Jesus is seen. I mean, it's just truly amazing. Almost I mean, everything you look at in the Old Testament, at first blush, you may not see it. But as you begin to study, it's like, whoa, there he is again. Well, we have a character named Jehu who was in, in your history books, you would begin to see that he was a king of Israel. And that isn't necessarily a compliment, by the way, because there really isn't a good king of Israel. He came close to being a good king. Can I say that? I mean, actually, the part of the story we're going to read, he's good. And then he just sort of falls apart. But forget about the second part. God still uses this man to reveal himself even to us, all these thousands of years later. His name, Jehu, literally is two different ways of saying Jehovah. It's like Jehovah, Jehovah. Yahweh, Yahweh. It's a way of saying, I am is. Yeah, kind of like that. Jehovah exists. That's, that's what his name means. It's sort of like, hey, you want to know something? Jehu. He is, is. I am that I am, is. So introducing Jehu, the bringer of righteous judgment. Now I'm going to give you a little background. I probably shouldn't even go to that screen yet. Give you a little background. I trimmed it out of the message just to try and keep this as tight and as streamlined as we could. However, this man is a very intricate and amazing part of the histories as chronicled in the Old Testament. And I'm going to start by reading you something that is way back uh, in the books of 1 Kings. Now, you'll know, if you know the Bible layout, that there's a 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 9 is when Jehu debuts. It's a long time from now. And yet he is mentioned here easily at least 20 years before he shows up. I'm not even sure if he was born yet. That's what's extra amazing about this story. He, God is speaking to Elijah. And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abimelahulah, sorry, Albemholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. 
Now, if you remember the context of all this, this is serious stuff taking place in Israel. What's taking place? Judgment. You see, Elijah has prayed, and for three and a half years it hasn't rained. God shows mercy on Israel and actually brings rain back. But guess what? Ahab and Jezebel do not repent. The amazing long-suffering of God, as revealed in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, is amazing. Simultaneous with an extraordinary judgment comes extraordinary mercy after mercy after mercy. God comes to the house of Ahab time and time again, pleads with him, sends prophet after prophet, and calls him to repentance. There are even times when Ahab seems to soften and say, I was wrong. And God relents in his punishment. And then Ahab goes right back to the way he was behaving before. Oh! Over 20 years, God is pleading with the nation of Israel to repent. It's an amazing statement of God's long-suffering, even with very specific criminals. And if you've ever studied Ahab and Jezebel, yuck! They're terrible! And yet God is enduring even to see Ahab and Jezebel come to repentance. Pretty amazing. So what we have is a prophecy about a man named Jehu that we don't know exactly how old he was. We just know that this is a long time before Jehu is actually going to be anointed. And guess what? Elijah wasn't even the one to anoint him. It was in the days of Elisha, pretty far into it, that we actually see Jehu come onto the scene. So... I'm going to skip forward. 20 years of repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So God is long-suffering. He comes with a message. And you'll notice that this message is all throughout the Bible and the New Testament. Repent. Repent, guys. Get out of Adam. Get into Christ. For the kingdom is at hand. You understand that there's a new regime coming in. There's a chariot with thunderous, furious wheels that will trample anything that stands against it. Repent now before it arrives. It's coming. Hark! I hear it in the distance. Do you hear the rumbling chariot wheels? Repent now. Now before it's too late. And it's always, you know, the culture's all fat, happy. And they look at it, hey, shut that guy up, burp, scratch. You see, we have business to attend to, and it's called self-pleasure. And these ranting, raving lunatics, known as the prophets, kill them! And yet God, because of his mercy, is sending you a prophet. It's because he desires you to repent, desires you to recognize your sinful condition. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself! So from 1 Kings chapter 16... To 2 Kings chapter 9, one way of summarizing it is, repent, and yet they don't. The four ingredients of destruction, indifference, eh, God, God's ways, eh, we don't need to deal with that. You become indifferent, you become dull, you become numb to the fact that you're living in sin. Do you remember that, you know, that conviction that uh, when you have it, you can harden to it? And you can say, oh, I don't want to tend to that. You know, I'm fine. You justify it. And that's actually what happens next, self-justification. You're tired of that conviction. So what you do is you justify it. You come up with a creative way of covering it up. The Puritans used to call it a makeshift rationalization. 
In other words, they would come up with some reason why that didn't apply to them. Oh, that doesn't matter because I, you know, go to church. No, but I'm better than Chuck down the street. There's always some reason that we come up with, and it's our hiding place. It's our solace. It's our refuge. We are hiding, instead of in Christ, we are hiding in a self-justification, thinking that that will be sufficient in the day of judgment. What does that lead to? Hardness of heart. When you get to hardness of heart, it's sort of like being pliable clay that ends up hardening. And it's very difficult. If you've ever taken a dried up piece of clay and tried to reshape it, not so easy. And that's precisely what happens in the human heart. There is a season when you are pliable to the Holy Spirit. If you reject the Holy Spirit and you lose that pliability, you end up entering into a state of hardness. We do not want to go there because what follows is judgment. The time for Jehu has come. One of the ways we could say is the time for judgment has come. So Elisha has actually assigned a prophet to go into the camp of Israel in the midst of battle when King Joram, who was a wicked king, a son of Ahab. Ahab's, by the way, dead. This is actually sort of one of the shocking dimensions of this story is that Ahab seemed to get out of this whole situation clean. It's like, what? The guy just dies a normal death? His family experienced anything but normal. Everything of the judgment of God is going to come upon Jezebel and his entire family and all of his sons, and he has a lot of them. And so the time for this judgment has come, and the perfect situation has arrived. Joram is injured. So he has gone back to Samaria, which is the capital city, or it might have been Jezreel. I, I, I might get that wrong. We'll see as we go. And so he's recovering. Meanwhile, the camp, Jehu, is, over, is like the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Elisha sends forth a prophet who the Jews would say was Jonah. Isn't that an interesting statement? But it never mentions that in the story, but they would say that was historically understood to be Jonah, the, a young prophet. And so this prophet comes in, takes a, a Jehu off to the side, and actually anoints him as king. It's like a renegade anointing. It's like a coup on the kingdom of Israel. We have a new king, and then all of his men shout, Jehu is king! Joram's not even there. The actual king wasn't even there on sight. He has no idea what's coming. He is in his sin, lying in his self-justification, heart of heart, and has no clue that judgment is coming on his house and all of his children. It's coming. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. Well, there's the answer. I could have just turned around and found out where, Jehu, or where uh, Joram was. He was in Jezreel, which is where <clears throat> Jezebel was too. For Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, another wicked king. We have wickedness all over the place in this story, by the way. Had come down to see Joram. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And said, I see a company of men. So one of the best ways to look at this is this watchman is sort of like one of those pastors in a church that's going to say, hey guys, I see a chariot coming. It's coming. It's riding fast. You don't really like to hear what a watchman has to say. But this watchman is just saying what's going on. Hey guys, I see some dust, a cloud of dust. I see a chariot coming. And he said, I, the, 
A watchman stood in the tower of Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king. So you and I are going to be the horseman in this story. Okay? So the horseman in this story is the one that goes out to meet this coming judgment. He says, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Doesn't that sound vaguely familiar? Doesn't that sound like something in the New Testament? Turn around and follow me. Repent. Come. Set down your nets. Follow me. Isn't that an interesting statement? Jesus is literally preaching, repent for the kingdom of the heaven is at hand. Hey, lay down your nets. Come follow me. I know who you serve. You serve Joram. Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, the messenger went to them, but is not coming back. (laughs) Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, he went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which is all part of a prophecy of something between Ahab and Jezebel of this vineyard. And this is going to be fulfilled right here too of something God said years before. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? Then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Isn't it interesting to see the difference between the messengers that came out, humbled themselves, actually gave up their loyalties to Joram, turned and got in the chariot with Jehu. Now Joram comes out, And when he recognizes and hears the message, he literally turns and flees. Treachery, Ahaziah. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out at his heart. There's there's a few moments in this that are pretty extreme. But remember, it's the Bible. I didn't come up with it. And he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the track to the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember... When you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagen. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. Now... I'm not exactly sure how you're processing all of this, but we have righteous judgment that is unfolding. And what you're going to see is that there's fraternal twins in the midst of each of these stories. There is opportunity for repentance. And then there is judgment on those that stand hostile to the incoming kingdom that is overtaking the pre-existing one. Jehu the decision man 
This reminds me, uh, the decision man, I, I was flying back. We, we used to have a, a, a guy who worked here, a dear friend of ours named Ben Zorns. And we were flying back from Indonesia together, and we were talking about, I think it was a sermon that I was working on. And he said something like, okay, I'm going to share with you a quote, but I get to preach on it first. You can't just go and preach on it. Because he knew that I was lined up to preach, and he didn't have a, a slot to preach yet. So he's like, you can't just steal this. And... And it was such a good quote, but he used a term in that it called the decision man. I was like, I could just picture this message called the decision man. And he's, he's the one that gave the message, the decision man. You could just look at the graciousness of Eric here, because this is really good. I'm going to give you the quote, because Jehu is a decision man. He's a man that when you encounter him, you have to make a decision. Are you with Joram? Are you with Ahab and, and Jezebel? Or are you with God? You pick. You had to pick. There was no middle ground. You couldn't just say, hey, uh, I'd like to play neutral in this. So here's the Jim Elliott quote. Father, make me a crisis man. He actually didn't even say decision man. He called it a crisis man. Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Isn't that an amazing statement? That is our job description in this earth, to literally bring about a crisis in people's lives. Guys, you can't stay in Adam. You can't hang out with Joram. You can't side with Jezebel and be right with Jehu. Jehu's coming to take his kingdom. Please, repent. Get away from him as fast as you can. His chariot has room in it. Please. So here's 2 Kings 9. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. Now Jezebel, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jezebel, but Jezebel you know, has some, even a reputation today. I mean, if you ever say she's a Jezebel, that's not a compliment, by the way. I mean, this is a wicked, conniving, manipulative woman who hates Jehovah. Hates Jehovah. And hates any of his servants. She slayed all the prophets of God. Everyone that was a prophet of Jehovah, she didn't just try and put up with them and not like them. She killed them. So we're talking about a wicked, wicked woman. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. Look what she does. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace who slew his master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? So here's the mental picture. You have Jezebel who comes to the window with her painted face. And you don't see anyone else yet. And Jehu comes up, stares up, sort of ignores Jezebel and say, Who in there is with me? Show yourself. Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Uh, we're with you. <laughs> then he said, listen to what he says. Throw her down. If you're with me, throw her down. Prove it. See, what you're seeing in this situation is exactly what the kingdom of heaven demands in your own life. We're not throwing a lady named Jezebel over. What we're doing is God's saying, you have to forsake your allegiance to the old man. You have to dump it out the window. You know what that means. It's going to be crushed at the foot of the castle. You recognize what this means. If you want to be with Jehu, you have to turn over your old man. You have to forsake it. You have to change your loyalties. 
throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall. Sorry, guys. I, I'm, and on the horses. And he, and he trampled her underfoot. See, this chariot of judgment is either your salvation because you get in it, or it is your judgment and you'll be trampled under it. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field and the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. You know what, there are plenty of statements about the coming judgment, just like there were statements about this judgment. God has foretold what will happen, and he will do it. It's that simple. So as a result, we, those that are in a pliable state of clayness, have the opportunity given us to throw Jezebel out the window, to humble ourselves and say, I know you have caught me in her castle. But if you give me a window through which I can enter into your life and to find my salvation in your kingdom, I accept it. I take it. It's not because of anything we did. We are not saved because we throw Jezebel out the window. We are saved because he is good and he has done a work on our behalf and he is merciful and he loves us and he has made a way for us to escape the judgment that is rightfully ours. We're in her home. We're serving her agenda. We may have participated in the slaughtering of the prophets, and yet God still shows mercy. 2 Kings 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So this is the capital city of the northern 10 tribes, Samaria. Just like Judah's capital was uh, Jerusalem. In the northern uh, country, it was Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. So he literally says, Look, guys, I'm coming to Samaria to bring judgment. So you pick out of his sons the most qualified, stick them on the throne, arm yourselves, I'm coming to fight. This is a very interesting statement. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, uh, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also and those who reared the sons, sent to Jehu saying, we are your servants. We will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. You see, if you have seen the history of God's judgment, if you understand what he has revealed in his word, this is your response. You see, even though we are rightfully to be judged, what do we say? I have no king but Jesus. I refuse to set anything above you. I recognize I'm undeserving, but could you show mercy in my direction? Then he wrote a second letter to them saying, if you are for me, and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. 
So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. Sorry, guys. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. How do you handle the lineage of Ahab in your life? How do you handle the heads, which means the authorities in your life? You've been subservient to lust. You've been subservient to fear. You've been subservient to anything grotesque, whether it's gluttony, whether it's stealing, whether it's lying tongues. Whatever has ruled you, whatever you have nurtured and cultivated in your life for your own promotion, God says, remove its head. Do not participate with it anymore. Side with me. Remember when we started, we, we said judgment. What is it? It's a remarkable punishment. It is beyond what any of us in this room feel comfortable with. Everything about this is revolting to us. It is fearful. It is full of terror. God reveals it in his word. Why? So that you would repent. Not so that you would just stare back in horror, but that you would recognize his goodness, his good news. The same God who will bring judgment was born as a little baby, humbled himself to be raised by a little girl in a town of Nazareth where nothing good can come out of, surrounded himself with fishermen and tax collectors. This God Almighty humbled himself and became obedient as a servant, even humbled himself to the point of death and died naked on a cross so that he could rescue you. When you have perspective of judgment, it makes the startling realities of the gospel all the more amazing. 2 Kings 10, And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way at Bethaked of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, uh-oh, and said, who are you? So they answered, uh, we are the brothers of Ahaziah. They're bragging about it too. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. They obviously don't know what they're messing with. And he said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Bethaked. 42 men, and he left none of them. Who are you with? I'm with Adam. I'm with Adam's race. I've chosen political correctness as my motto. I want to fit in down here. That's my bragging point. That's why the world will like me. That's my boast. Take him alive. How about I'm with Jesus and all the world mocks. It's still a better decision. I'm with Jehu on this one. I'm with Jehu. Jehu, who's with him. Are you with Ahab in his house? Or are you with Jehu in his house. Now, I know that most of you in here are Christians, but I want you to recognize that to hang out in the palace of Jezebel and to serve her and to help her paint her face and then on Sundays show up and act as if you're with Jesus doesn't work. You must forsake the first, put off the first, and wear the second. Put it on. Where, even though it might be considered infamy in this generation. Are you behind Ahab, hiding in the false security of a wicked king? Or are you behind Jehu, the anointed of Jehovah and the true power of salvation? You know how hard this would be? 
If you see a furious chariot coming, you see, you're with the king. The king Ahab, his descendants, you have Joram, you have Ahaziah, that's two kings. Wouldn't you feel rather secure with all of their armies that you could say, I'm with them. I feel secure. You see, there are many people that find a false security in the day of judgment. They have conned themselves into thinking that any defense of this earth, any self-justification can somehow preserve them in the day of judgment. But there is only one thing that can preserve you. Jehu, his judgment is furious, but right. Now, this is somewhat of a haunting statement that I'm going to read to you because many of you that are reading this, especially if you knew where Jehu ends up, he doesn't turn out that hot, okay? He's sort of what we'd call a neutral to negative king in the histories of Israel. Israel just has no good kings. And so the fact that this guy, this guy was like one of the best ever of Israel kings, but still not to measure up to the standards of what God intended a king to be. But what he has just done, all these things that I've just read you, there is a statement about them which is haunting because we want to decry them as, oh, well, that was extreme, when in fact God is going to make a statement quite to the contrary. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. You guys ready to swallow that one? That was in God's heart. That was right in his sight. You see, God is just. And that which stands against him will be trampled under the chariot wheels. But did you also know that he showed mercy to those who turned and followed him? That also was right and in God's heart. Don't miss that. The proclamation. The old man is judged, guys. Ahab and his house are under condemnation. The time has come to prove it. The old man is judged. His end is sure. Join the revolution of light. Judgment begins in the house of God. So here we're talking about judgment, and we're just like, whew, I'm glad I know Jesus. And yet, the first stages of understanding God's judgment on sin takes place in our midst. In other words, though we are being preserved in Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit to purify us as a bride. And he will bring judgment, though it will not be an eternal condemnation. He will judge that which is in our hearts. He will judge our thoughts and our actions so that he can sanctify us and make us like himself. And so as a result, God is coming to purify, to thresh the wheat, to bring about a chastening of his bride. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Climbing in Jehu's chariot. This, this next little scene, as we're going to finish, is one of my favorite pictures in the Bible. The more I've thought about it, I mean, the more amazed I am at the beauty of God's mercies. 2 Kings 10. Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? 
So no matter where you're at today, I would ask that you would set a course to meet Jehu. Now you could say, he's terrible. He's, he's in a form of mode of judgment. I can't come near that righteousness. Go set a course to find him. Jonadab sets forth to meet him. He departs to meet Jehu. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? That's what Jehu says. And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. The same device that is trampling Jezebel is literally where Jehonadab takes him into. Now, who's in the chariot with him? You see, there is judgment, and guess who's in the judgment? Jehonadab. But guess what? He's safe in the judgment. He's bold in the judgment. Why? Well, he's in the chariot. He's with the judge. You see, depending on how you relate to the judge depends on how you appropriate the day of judgment. We'll all be there. But you're either under the chariot wheels or you're in the chariot with the judge. And as a result, there's a big difference between the outcome of the two. Unless your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will be trampled. Unless your heart is towards him as his is towards you and you take his hand and accept his offering and come into him, into the judge's chariot, then you have no hope in this world. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Are we ready for the day of judgment? Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. How in the world, after what I just read, can we have boldness in the day of judgment? How about fearful trembling and melting like hot wax. I mean, how in the world are we supposed to stand firm? Because as he is, so are we in this world. We're as he is. Where's Jehu? What is he? He's riding in a chariot with authority to judge. So are we. We are with him in that judgment. And that is why we are bold. We are as he is. If he is deemed righteous in the Father's eyes, so are we. If he is deemed perfected in the Father's eyes, so are we. If he is in the position of judge, then we are with him as opposed to being judged. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, and this is my little addition here, because we ride in the I Am's chariot. So are we in this world. A few pertinent questions. Is your heart towards him the same as his heart towards you? Have you taken his hand and entered his almighty chariot of fire and judgment? Are you participating in the judging of the old house in order to establish his new house? You see, when you forsake this first life, you enter into his chariot. And what's his chariot starting with? Your old life. Let's trample this under feet, Eric. Let's not allow any of this to remain. You are no longer subservient to this. We are bringing in a new kingdom into the land of Eric. And so as a result, I agree with God in the judgment of all that has stood against my life. 
and I allow him to trample it down and turn it to dust so that it no longer rules. Nothing stands against his authority in my life. Have I sided with Jehu or am I still wanting to preserve and protect me, my idols, my high places? Are you in his judging company? in full agreement with his agenda, or are you the object of his judgment? Have you painted your face and come to the window feigning or acting that you are justified and clean in your wickedness? A painted face. Look, look how pretty I am. You see, many of us are coming and we're painting our face and saying, I'm fine. Do not pull a Jezebel. Are you willing to join the revolution and toss wicked Jezebel out the window? Are you willing to serve up the 70 heads of Ahab's sons to Jehu and declare him your king, spiritually speaking? Do you agree with Jehu in his great zeal? And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And anyone who is not in Jehu's chariot will be trampled under its wheels. Anyone who is not with Jehu is against him. Who are you with? Now, after that, John was put in prison. Speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, the beginnings of his ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news. I know this whole message doesn't sound like good news, does it? Jehu is bringing righteousness to bear upon this country, and he's going to establish a new kingdom. So anyone who esteems righteousness can find safety under Jehu, you actually can now openly stand against Joram and Ahaziah and be safe. And he will bring judgment on all that has tried to hinder Israel up to this point. Yay! For the preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. God is coming. And he is setting up his kingdom in the hearts of men and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Do you believe that he has the authority? Do you believe that he's accomplished it? Do you believe that he's the fulfillment of all righteousness? Do you believe that he is in fact the son of God that has worked a wondrous work on that cross to save you? Repent of this old life and believe him. And your name will be written in him. You too will be seated in heavenly places in Christ, in the place, in the very presence of Jehovah, and in the day of judgment which we all must face. You will be in Christ, the righteous. You will be in the book of life, written there, and you will be preserved. Father, only your spirit can truly work this to the level that we all need in our souls. May we not just hear the pronouncement of coming judgment, but may we understand the gravity of it in our life and the life of this dying world. Lord, may it move us to our knees. May it strike a proper fear within us, one that would lead us to love you more, to honor you, more, to show a reverence and a respect that is truly due your name. You have accomplished a great and mighty work so that we could be rescued. You've unlocked the door to your chariot so that we can climb in. And you've given us all a personal invitation. Lord Jesus, 
when you ask us if our heart is towards you as yours is towards us. I pray that every single one of us in here could say, it is. We love you and we trust you. We thank you for your great and mighty work of salvation, which has a fraternal twin in your great and mighty work of judgment. May we see judgment properly so that we can truly appropriate the beauty and the power of your salvation and your good news. It's in the precious name we pray. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.